0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Insider. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. Today we will talk with Sohaila Abdulali and about her new book, What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. We say in our starred review of the book that she brings precision, clarity, and style to her exploration of a topic often treated as more confusing than it is. Hello Sohaila, so glad you could join us. Thank you. So when we talk about rape, what is it that we actually do talk about?
1: I think that what I try to say in my book is that we often talk about either too much or too little, by which I mean that rape, in my opinion, is both bigger and smaller than we make it. It is very big because when you talk about rape, you're really talking about the whole structure of society and patriarchy and race and class and everything that goes into this act. But then when you're sitting in a room with one person who's been raped, you're just talking about one person in pain and you need to leave all that behind. So I think a lot of what we get wrong is that we make it big or small at different moments.
0: So why is this so confusing? So given that, so what is it that makes us, as you say, we're we're sitting with someone who has been raped or, or just talking about it? Why is this so confusing? What complicates matters?
1: Well, I, uh, I know I've just written the book, but I'm, I'm still not exactly sure. But I think that there's been, part of it is that rape is connected to sex. And we are so confused generally about sex. We are frightened to equate rape with sex because obviously it's not. It's a powerful, it's an act of power and violence and domination, but it is a sexual act. And you look at anywhere and when you talk about sex, people get completely weird and bizarre. Then it has to do with sexism. And then there's, you know, globally, historically, we've built up so much shame and drama around rape that it's really hard to cut through that. And it's really even hard for someone like me who not only has got the kind of street cred of being a victim and a writer, it, it's really difficult because, say, for instance, in my book, I tried to be level-headed about it. But the entire time, my biggest fear was that I would make light of it, which is awful because it's not light it is in fact a horrifying act but there is a way to talk about it not in the most heated manner and leaving your assumptions behind but it is it is difficult to find that balance because we never we never try to get it we just kind of explode at one end or the other
0: so you talk about the, the many instances of rape, and as it's discussed here in the United States, as well as your birth country of India and elsewhere, uh, talk a little bit about that. What is the discussion, say, uh, in the United States versus in India? Um, how have you find the discussion different there or different in other countries?
1: Well, it's really fascinating because not only is it different, but it became different during my writing of the book so that became a part of my of my process because i st- i got my book deal and my contract and everything before me too so my whole premise was that i was writing this book on a on an obscure little topic that nobody ever talked about and then i wrote my introduction about how no one talks about it and then me too exploded in the headlines here and later there so i had this moment of thinking do i actually need to write this book and then i realized i i want to write this book because i it's different in a book than on a, in a tweet, and I do have things to say. So what I did in order to create the book was I basically told everybody I knew that I'm writing this book on rape, and because I happen to know people on different continents, I started to get feedback and leads from all over, and I found all these really interesting things you ask about between U.S. and, the, and India. In the U.S., it's not as much about being spoiled for life. But it's very much about if you're raped, you're damaged for life. And you if you're really ever happy again, that's just really weird because then maybe it wasn't so bad. So you're not allowed to be traumatized and then work through it. And you're just treated as somehow damaged.
0: Do you mean psychologically damaged?
1: Yeah, psychologically. Whereas in India, it's more psychologically as well as physically. Because in India, we, ha- we actually have a term for rape victims which is zinda lash, which means living corpse. So it, it, in that, in our culture, often the assumption is that it's really better to be dead than to be raped. That if you're raped, you, you're really better off killing yourself because you can, nobody will marry you, you brought dishonor on the family. So there is that difference. But then you kind of drill down into what the woman actually feels. It's just terrible in both instances. You no, know, it's just a different flavor of terrible.
0: Well, you just touched on something, and that was you had just said in India, this is something that you have brought on your family, so it's the the victim's fault.
1: Not necessarily. That is also the case. For instance, I was, you know, I I was seventeen when it happened to me, and and the when I tried to report it to the police, that was very it was very much my fault because. I wasn't dressed like a proper Indian girl. I was—I hadn't braided my hair. I was out in the evening. I was with a boy. So it was my fault. But the question you're asking about honor is a different thing. Even if it's not your fault, women are supposed to be the representatives of culture and family. They, they are the vessels that uphold the honor of the family. So if something happens to you, nobody cares whether it's your fault or not. You've dishonored your family. Because... Because if women are the property of men, if the men couldn't protect the women from whatever happened to them, then they're dishonored. They haven't done their job. So it's kind of a blot on everyone. I mean, just think about it. It's just ridiculous. Imagine if you got mugged on the street. Would you then start having these thoughts of it's your father's fault and his family name has been besmirched? And when you come right down to it. Both are just violent crimes. One happens to be sexual in nature and one is more financial.
0: So, I want to refer to that to the New York Times op ed piece you wrote in 2013, where you talked about the 17 year old you being raped in Bombay. And this article just got a lot of feedback. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to write it. And this was maybe at the time, that was probably 30 years earlier. So, what made you decide to write it then, and what was the response you got?
1: Okay. Um, well, what happened is that, no, I was gang rape when I was 17 and I was about to start college. So it happened in India and three weeks later I left, I came here, I started college and then I um, I decided that it would be very interesting to do my senior thesis on rape in India. So I got a grant and I went completely naively back home thinking that I'm going to talk to all these rape victims and find out everything that's going on and all I found was resounding silence because i everyone said there's no rape in india there's no one who's going to talk to you and even if there is rape it was very much it was a kind of an issue of the left at that point it was a class issue the only rapes that were talked about were rapes by police and landlords and upper class men on lower class oppressed women as a kind of a, a a class violence so i didn't fit i didn't fit that mold i'm a middle class woman i was raped by poorer men so I didn't, you know, nobody was going to sympathize with someone like me or admit that this could happen because it didn't fit into the, you know, the social narrative. So I I got really indignant because I thought I can't be the only one. And also, why is why is it supposed to be so shameful? So I don't know if you remember being 20, but it's very different, right? You kind of don't really think that far ahead. So I just thought, I, I can't, this is just wrong. I have to fix it. So I found this women's magazine in India, and I wrote a little article saying, I was raped, I'm not ashamed, here is my photograph, I'm not the one who committed the crime, this whole thing, very passionate, and I sent it to them, and they published it, and no Indian woman had ever spoken out before, ever, about being raped. So they published it, and it made a little bit of a stir, but there was no internet, luckily, (laughs) and so it eventually just died, and then 30 years passed, and then in December 2012, there was that murder, the gang rape and murder in Delhi, which I'm sure you remember. So when that happened, I was really, I was really upset about it. But I also was really happy to see that for the first time, people in India were actually talking about rape, there were protests, there was this, I was thrilled. And I was also thrilled, I felt like my work is done, I can just sit back and enjoy this, and look at the progress my country is making. But then it turns out they still couldn't find the press was desperate to talk to someone the world press, and they still couldn't find anyone. Then someone found the copy of Manushi, the magazine, and they took a photo of the page with my article and my picture, and they posted it on Facebook. And I had no idea because I was never on Facebook, and I'm still not. So all this was happening, and I was blissfully unaware until I heard about it. Someone sent me an email and said, look, have you seen this? And then suddenly it. it I, just, I was inundated with phone calls from media and friends, and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, I just, I didn't choose this, I didn't want to be out about this now because I'm kind of done. But then I thought, well, I do have something to say, because I'm not that same person that I was at 20, and I I would like to say something. So luckily, I had this opportunity to write for the New York Times, and I, I was really happy I wrote it, because it was kind of a more, it was 30 years later piece. So it came out, and it led to a lot of drama, because for one thing, my brother and I had to then tell our children about this, and lots of people I knew who had no idea knew about it. And the, the piece went viral, and I got about a thousand emails from survivors all over the world, from India, Pakistan, places in Africa, Denmark, you know, wherever, lots of And it was amazing because so many of these people had never told a single person. And I just, I, despite working with rape victims and stuff, I was still startled at the secrecy. So I replied to every single one of the emails. And then I uh, just kept them in a folder and put them away. Then when I thought of writing this book, I suddenly realized I had this amazing research repository. So I went back to all those emails. And I found the ones which I thought were not in crisis when they wrote to me. Because, you know, if, if you're still in crisis about something and you're trying to put it behind you, you don't want somebody to pop up five years later and say, remember me? Think about right now whether you want to or not. So I, I picked the people who seemed like they had already kind of become calm and accepted it into their lives. And I wrote to a bunch of them and said, I'm writing this book. Would you like to be part of it? And that's how I began my research for the book, by talking to some of these people. I met some, I talked with someone's phone or Skype, and they set me on the path. So it was a very fascinating journey, and I'm glad I did it.
0: So you also have experience talking to rape victims. You worked at a rape crisis center. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that experience and and what you learned from that and how that worked into your, your book.
1: Well, you know, I, I must say I feel a bit of a fraud acting like that's a huge part of the book because, you remember, that was, that was almost 30 years ago. I did it for about three years when I first graduated from college. So I haven't been talking to victims for 30 years. I don't want to pretend I'm a huge expert. So I can only talk about what it was like there. And it was fascinating. I just graduated from college. I'd never had a job. And I just walked into this, I saw an ad in the paper. I had no qualifications whatsoever. I hadn't even studied psychology. And they were looking for a coordinator to basically run the place. And they hired me. I'm still not sure why. I was the youngest there. And it, and it was in Boston. And it, it was really fascinating. I used to work on the hotline full time. I used to meet with clients. I used to go try to raise funds. In fact, the week after they hired me, they lost their funding. So they said, your first job is to fundraise for your salary. So I had to do that. And I got to know about the laws. I got to testify at the state house. It was really fascinating. And I didn't, looking back, I think it was really good for me too, because I had never had any counseling. So I didn't have any, but just working it out with all these different people helped me a lot too. So it was an amazing experience. I'm still still really grateful to them.
0: So you talk about your book uh, on several themes with with a chapter covering a certain theme. You talk about consent, responsibility and and even motive in rapes. Can you talk a little bit about that? About those themes?
1: Yeah, I guess I can start with consent. And consent is tricky. That was my hardest chapter to write, I have to say, because we when I, when we when I was in college in the 80s, it was still the days of the feminist movement where We would have the take back the night marches and we would have these posters that said yes means yes and no means no. And consent seemed really clear to us. But more and more I realized it's not clear. Sometimes you say yes and you actually mean no. But then whose responsibility is it to figure that out? If you're two grown people and one says yes, but they actually mean no, who's supposed to know what the reality is? And I'm not talking about you know like what happened to me with stra- armed strangers. Then that's clearly there's no question of consent. But I'm talking about say a date rape in college. How do you figure out consent? And I think that all these rules, affirmative consent, they're all great and they're on the right track. But I don't think anything will work until we actually teach both boys and girls to respect each other's needs. I think that's what it comes down to. I talk to a sex educator who said that you can't have rape ed without sex ed. We raise raise girls and boys in this country with these weird standards like that sex is meant for boys to enjoy and girls to put up with. And that's really sad. I think sex is meant for everyone to enjoy. So if, if you have a situation where there's a guy and a girl and the guy actually has the attitude that I care that she's into it, then it's much easier to determine consent because it, if you can actually figure out that the person doesn't want or isn't enjoying it, then you stop. So uh, consent is complicated. And I think the first step is to talk about things and discuss them. But none of that will work if we don't actually each one look out for the other and care whether the person wants it or not. That's the bottom line.
0: Well, I want to just turn now to you put all this in your book. When did you decide this should become a book?
1: Um, I know exactly when I decided it was it was last summer because what happened is is that after the New York Times op-ed I had all these agents contact me um, and ask me to write a memoir but I knew that the memoir they wanted was a memoir which basically made the rape the central event of my life and that felt fake to me because it wasn't and and I don't really feel like analyzing my whole life through that one event So I just said no to everyone and then I thought I must put this rape victim thing behind me and I went on and did a whole lot of other things and one of them was that I wrote a newspaper column, a Saturday newspaper in India for three years and I gathered all these columns and I thought it'd be great to make a book but whoever I asked about the book would come back and say why don't you write a memoir to the point where I got really aggravated and when Penguin India... Wrote to me and said, Why don't write a memoir? I I just wrote back and said, I I don't want to write a memoir, I'm not interested in writing a memoir. Please stop asking me to write a memoir. And the editor there, Manasi, who actually is my Indian editor now, wrote me back this really intelligent email. And she said, You don't have to write a memoir, but you're clearly passionate about the subject. You know a lot about it. You have strong opinions. Why not just write a book on rape? It doesn't have to be a memoir. And I got really excited. And so in the end, I signed with a publisher in the UK, Myriad Editions, and then she sold it to the all the other publishers in the US and India and Australia. So it was interesting. I signed the contract last summer. I started writing it in September. And I think it was a month or two into writing it that Me Too happened. So it's been a really fascinating year to try to follow this everywhere, incorporate into my book where I can, but still keep you know, keep the thoughts I had originally in mind. So I, I, I've actually loved the writing process. It's been amazing. Well,
0: and I'm glad that your book is out there as part of the conversation now.
1: I am too. And actually, that feels really strange to me too. Because remember that I started to write it thinking it's going to be this outlying book on this outlying topic. So I'm very happy that's part of the conversation, but it's also taken me aback a bit. That, that I'm suddenly, I'm writing about a hot topic. I'm not used to writing about a hot topic, but I'm not complaining.
0: We've been talking with Sohaila Abdulali and her new book, What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape, which is in stores right now. Sohaila, thanks so much for talking with us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes and we'll see you next week.